The Kabbalah of Psychology, the study of the soul. This program is dedicated for a complete and speedy recovery to Ella Reitzina. May she live long, healthy years. Psychology is a word that is today a household name. Millions, billions of people go to therapy are dealing with their psyche. Psychology actually means the study of the soul. Psycho is soul and logi is the study of. For some reason, people call Sigmund Freud the father of psychology, father of modern psychology. The truth is psychology, being the study of the human psyche, is part and parcel and inherent to the human condition. So it goes back to the beginning of the human race, the first human being, individually. That individual's involvement with other human beings, spouse, partner, marriage, whatever institution was, community, dealing with children, dealing with parents. This is not a new phenomenon. We've always struggled in that arena, and we've always had challenges. So I would venture to say that the reason we associate with Freud being the father of psychology, modern psychology, even though, for the record, <clears throat> there are many detractors that completely disagree with Freudian psychology, but he's still in many ways the person to disagree with. Today you have Carl Jung, we have Adler. We have Frankel, Logotherapy, Man's Search for Meaning. And others. Today, recently, in the last decade or two, we had positive psychology. And I'm sure there'll be more variations and different variations because it's so relevant to the human situation, human condition, understanding what makes us tick, who we are. So what I will be addressing is the Kabbalah of psychology. You can say Kabbalah is mysticism, is soul. So the soul of the soul. What really rides behind, drives us and our soul? So I'm not looking to create an alternative psychological methodology here. I think it's one that precedes them all, that begins in the Bible itself, but provides us with tremendous insight, remarkable perspective on who we are, what makes us tick. And in it, you'll find, actually, I believe, the best of so many different psychological ideas out there. So the earliest documentation we have of psychology goes back, of course, to the Greeks, to the Persians, to different scholars, both in the East and West, all trying to understand the soul. The human soul is journey, the pain it goes through, the fears. But perhaps the earliest document of all is the Bible itself, the Torah. And in a narrative, in story form, today, known perhaps one of the maybe most famous stories of all, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in paradise teaches us fundamental principles 
that when made relevant, I should qualify that, when presented in a relevant way, provides us with a powerful methodology, a comprehensive approach to understanding ourselves, others, and therefore dealing with, intervening with any challenge or issue we come up with. So what is the narrative? Let's begin with the narrative. What is the story? The story is the human being, Adam and Eve, male and female, created, placed in a garden. The Garden of Eden, paradise. And charged with a mission. Two words. You shall serve and you shall protect. We'll soon discuss what that means. Okay, there they are in the garden. Everything they need is provided for. No need to work. No need to labor. To serve and protect. And then they're told, here in this garden there are many trees, and two of them are unique. The tree of life, and which you shall eat from, and the tree of knowledge. Here's where the plot thickens. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat from this tree. When you will eat from it, you will bring upon yourself mortality and ultimately die. A serpent appears, a mysterious serpent that tempts them, seduces them. God doesn't want you to eat from it because he doesn't want you to be like God. And with the different explanations given, which we're not going to go into here in detail, they ultimately eat from that tree, though they were told not to. And then their consciousness changes. Once they eat from the tree, it says their eyes opened. And they recognized that they were naked. So they were ashamed, so they covered themselves. God appears and says to Adam, who's hiding from God in shame, where are you? Ayeko, where are you? And then we hear the story, they're banished from the garden forever. Adam is punished with, from here on, from the sweat of your brow, you will have to earn your own bread. No longer as a gift from above. And the woman Eve is, is told, you will now from here on bear, have pain in pregnancy and in birth. The serpent is rendered legless that you will crawl on the ground and you and the human being will always be adversaries. And indeed, the serpent symbolizes and in many ways drives fear into us. So what's the story behind the story? What is going on here? Well, it's a story of human consciousness, the soul, and who we are, who we truly are. The first thing we need to remember, we're placed in this world, and this world is a garden. And we are its gardeners, and we're charged with a mission. The mission is to serve and to protect. Those are two different words, and they mean something very different. Serve means to do something positive. What does a gardener do? You plant the seeds, you nurture, you cultivate, you water, you nourish, make sure the flowers, make sure the vegetation, everything that grows should grow properly. The second is you protect. You protect from weeds, you uproot the weeds, parasites, and other forces that can damage. So life is about choices, 
by doing the right things and also not doing the wrong things. You can eat healthy food, but you can also eat toxic food. You cannot eat toxic food, but also not eat healthy food. You need both. You need to provide the healthy nutrients, the healthy exercise and hygiene and everything necessary to serve and to protect from the negative. And we humans are unique with the choice we have. We're given a choice. To either do it or not do it. Adam and Eve were given that choice. But here comes the big question. How could they choose from right or wrong, good and evil, when they didn't yet eat from the tree? And here they chose to defy God's command, that's, which, is not a, which is an evil act, a transgression, when they didn't eat from it. The answer is this. You can be a perfect human being, even a righteous tzaddik, a righteous individual. And you know that in, ex- there, in existence there is right and wrong. There's two paths. This doesn't mean you have to travel down them to know it. So they knew there were two paths. They were given that choice. They were told there were two trees. But eating from the tree of knowledge is more than knowing it, being aware of it. It's tree of knowledge. Knowledge is not wisdom and not understanding. Das. Das is intimate. That's why actually the word for sexuality in the Bible is intimacy. You don't just connect with another person. You become one with them. It's intimacy. Intimate knowledge. So here they didn't just weren't philosophically and conceptually aware of right and wrong. They tasted from the forbidden fruit. And that makes all the difference. To know about it from a distance. But once you taste, you've lost your innocence. And just an aside... People think it was an apple tree, Adam's apple. That's incorrect. There were four opinions what this tree of knowledge was. One, a fig tree. Another, a vine, grapevine. Third, an esrog, a citron. And fourth, a chita, which is grain, wheat. But that's not relevant to our discussion. Once they ate from it, they experienced good and evil. And that changes everything. What changed? They became conscious. They opened their eyes were opened. They became aware of themselves, independent of their mission. Up to that point, in a sense, think of it like child consciousness. A child is not embarrassed of its nakedness, of its nudity. Why should it be embarrassed? It's part of the human body. You have eyes and ears and other parts of the body. We also have sexual organs. When someone is seamlessly connected to who they are, and there's no self-consciousness. So we usually think of consciousness and awareness as a quality. Oh, that person is not aware. They're not conscious of what's going on. Heightened consciousness. But in an interesting way, consciousness itself is actually a limited experience. Because when you're in it, when you are it, you don't need to be conscious of it. A dry hand you put into water, it gets wet. What about a fish? What about water itself? Does water get wet? No, water is wetness. You can know something, so there's a subject and an object. You know a piece of knowledge. But once you become it, it's more than just knowing it. You have become it. You're one with it. We hear about being in the zone. You're reading a book, completely immersed, consumed, mesmerized by the story. You turn pages, you don't even realize you're turning pages. You can cry, you can laugh. Your heart can have palpitations, suspense, fear, joy. Someone watching says, I'm just reading a book. 
Then suddenly you realize you're reading a book. You say, pages. What happened? Because the words weren't any war longer words. They're not pages. The writer was so captivating that you became one with the story. That you can't even rip apart. You, can, you can't even recognize, oh, I'm conscious of a story. I'm listening. You're not even listening to the story. You're not even reading the story. You are in the story. That's how powerful it can be. Sometimes you're involved in a project that you're really passionate about. And the hours roll by. It gets night, later, later, later. You forget what time it is. You don't know you're hungry or thirsty. It's 5 a.m. Wow, where did the time go? That's being in the zone. You're so immersed, you're not even conscious. Here, another example. Right now, you're watching me? Listen to this. What is happening with your left leg right now? Suddenly you say, oh, my left leg? Oh, it's resting on my right leg. It's under the table. It's peace. It's painful. It's not painful. What happened the second before I asked you that question? Was the left leg not there? It was so part of you, you don't have to think about it. Pre-tree of knowledge was a seamlessness, a total transparency of the individual being completely committed to what they have to be doing. Transgression, or you could say the word evil, not really evil, you know what it is? It's dissonance, the birth of dissonance, of separation, of not being aligned with what you, where you should be. You're no longer a fish in water. Now you, and experience, even the moral ethical choice is a choice you make, it's outside of you. A healthy human being naturally breathes. You don't need to make an effort to say, I'm going to breathe right now. If you need to make such an effort, you probably need help. A person is hungry, your body craves for food. The same thing is the purpose of life. When we're seamlessly connected as it was pre-tree of knowledge, you sense, you instinctively sense what is right and what is wrong. Once you become an independent conscious, you made a choice. Oh, I am outside of my purpose. So it's me, either I'm fulfilling it or not fulfilling. I may be doing good things, but it's you doing a good thing. It's not you are the goodness. The dissonance was born. And dissonance leads to all the neuroses and everything that psychology addresses. It's no longer a soul that's seamlessly connected to the divine image, to the divine image in which it was created. Now soul has, I open my eyes. Now I sense I'm naked. I sense I'm an entity. I have a sexual identity. Others people look at me in a certain way. I look at them a certain way. There's a whole eye at work. So we, so the healthy Response to that is, that awareness now leads, I need to cover myself. That's dignity. Before that, the dignity was, because it was there, was not needed to, to do anything about it. You were a piece of dignity. You were an extension of your dignified purpose in existence. So now comes the birth of awareness and the birth of duality, which on its own, okay, doesn't sound bad, right? But duality leads to the dissonance, to discord, ultimately even to divisiveness, to being split between who you are and what you do, between who, what you do and your purpose in life, and all the different voices, the different conflicts that we have. And now, of course, the question is, what do we do with all that? This isn't just a narrative. It's told a narrative story. It's a story of who we are, the essence of who we are. And that's why God says to Adam, Ayeka, where are you? Well, God didn't see where Adam was. He could hide from God. But sometimes you're sitting with someone. They may be right near you. 
and they space out. And you say, where are you? You know where their body is. You want to know where their mind is, where their heart is, where their soul is, their presence. They're not present. So you say, where are you? God says, I don't recognize you. You've betrayed yourself. You've betrayed your purpose. You've betrayed your mission. You've betrayed your dignity. I don't recognize that divine image in which you were created, that agent of goodness. I, t- I, I created you as a gardener. You were supposed to serve and protect. What happened? Another agenda. Now, the point was that there should be free will. But the free will is for us to choose. We're not robots. We're not clones. We're not machines. We're not puppets. To choose. And there you have the story. We're placed into a garden, the world, and our lives, each of us, whatever part of our lives where we live, whether it's our own individual self, the person you meet becomes your spouse, becomes your partner, your significant other, the family you build, the extended family, community, the world at large, it's all gardens. It's a garden. And you are the gardener charged with the mission to serve and protect, to do what's right, to feed and nourish, to water, to allow it to blossom and thrive, your own soul, other people's souls, everyone around you, and to protect, uproot the weeds, avoid the toxins or eliminate them, create an environment that is pure both through your positive actions and through avoiding negative ones. Because you need both. Every machine needs to be cleaned a certain way and you need to watch out that dust and toxic and other potent forces should not damage it. But because we have choice, we can choose not to fulfill our mission. And do what? Wander off. And suddenly you, you, are, you are separated from, misaligned from your calling, from your mission, from your divine purpose. And now you're conscious. To turn back the clock and go back to a state of seamlessness, like the zone I mentioned, that may not be that easy now. But now you have to use that newfound awareness to now retrace our steps. That's why we're told the story. Because what happens often is when we do something wrong and we get misaligned or dissonance or any form of, of a disconnect, what happens? That's, where the, that's the root of all fears, insecurities, lack of confidence, trust issues. It all begins because we were disappointed. We were hurt. We feel we don't deserve. We start blaming ourselves. It could be parents, educators. It could be society. But what happens next? We begin to identify with that which has happened to us. You don't say, I have anxiety. I'm now an anxious person. I'm an insecure person. You've identified with it. It happened to you, and it wasn't your fault. So the reason we read the story of the garden is not just to tell us nostalgia, what the world was once like, what your consciousness is like when you're born as a newborn child, and now you've lost your innocence. What could you do? No. That still remains. The garden's just concealed. Banished from the garden doesn't mean the garden is removed completely. It means you cannot live in a garden-like life. Now you have to earn your way. You have to sweat. And you have to bear the pains of life. Because there's no longer seamlessness. Seamlessness would be, fill your purpose, and the earth will provide everything you need. Do your purpose, and you'll have children without pain. But now there's a dissonance between the truth and our reality. So now we have to earn our way. But the most important thing is, don't identify with what's happened to you. 
All healing, good healing, true healing begins when you can separate that what happened to you is not you. If you can separate the two, that begins the process. Okay, how do I reclaim myself? How do I reclaim my soul? That's the story. That you're still a gardener. But now you're a gardener that's aware. You're no longer that seamless entity because you've tasted from the tree. We've lost our innocence in a certain way. But don't let yourself identify as such. That's not your new identity. Your identity remains the gardener, remains charged with the created the divine image and the ability to be able to do things with your life that can return your life and the world in it to that garden-like state. So yes, we have two voices inside of us. The Kabbalah of psychology will teach us. In contrast to Freudian id, which is that there's an unconscious. And some give credit to him that of on discovering the unconscious, which though anyone reading earlier materials knows that was known. But maybe he popularized it. But above all, that the unconscious is the id, the selfish id, the pleasure principle. My pleasure, sexual pleasure, drives everything. Then there's an ego and a superego in Freudian terminology that monitors, that guides, that filters, that it superimposes itself, or else if we're just driven by pure pleasures, hedonistic, selfish pleasure, we'll destroy each other. We need green lights and red lights. We need referees. So we create a society. There's coexistence, there's cooperation. But at the essence, the wild, untamed animal, seeking pleasure. In contrast to that, the Kabbalah of psychology, which goes back thousands of years earlier than modern psychology, tells us, no, you're in essence a divine image. Not the id, but the yid. A spark of the divine. Pintal yid. A kadat, a spark, a yud. And you are a gar- you're in a garden, not in a jungle and not in a wilderness. However, it can, weeds can grow to the point you ever see a garden that's completely overgrown. Comes a wilderness, a jungle. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have the potential to be a garden. So it's all there. But now you need to do the work. Before the work would have been to serve and protect. Now the serve and protect takes on a whole new meaning. You need to uproot the weeds. You need to get refocused because we can all say, you know what, there's no garden any longer. I may believe there was once a garden. I may believe I was once a good person. No, it's right now real and beating inside your chest right now. And you need to uncover it. Yes, it's going to take more work now. Sweat, pain. But you can do it. Yes, you're no longer seamlessly connected that you don't even need to be conscious of it because you're, you're it. You're now no longer it, but you want to connect to it. The last thing you want to do is identify with your new reality. So in chapter 2 in Genesis, chapter 2, it talks about another voice, the id, you can say. There's a voice, a side inside of you, that does is selfish. But that comes in chapter 2, not in chapter 1, not in Genesis, in this next chapter. Because in essence, you always remain beautiful, you always remain a garden, always remain a flower. But now you want to discover, where are you? You want to realign your being, your consciousness, with the divine consciousness, with higher consciousness. To the point that you can become one with it again, we don't need even to be conscious because you're it. You become the water. You're not just experiencing it. But it's in stages. So now the knowledge we've gained and we've tasted and we've experienced and we've lost the innocence, 
that knowledge, make sure you don't become identified. Everyone makes mistakes, but don't make a philosophy out of them. It's not who you are. Don't justify it. Say, this is who I am, but there's a backdrop. You know, whenever you teach someone art or music, or in any scenario, you always want to have to juxtapose your reality that exists with another, a more perfect reality. You think of an x-ray. They take an x-ray, God forbid you have a problem with your lungs. Someone has a problem, there's some block. So you take an x-ray of the lungs, they juxtapose it on a screen, on a film, on the screen, with healthy lungs, and then you say, oh, you see here? Here there's some type of gray area, shade area, and so on. The same thing in art. You need to have a perfect form of art so you can say, here's where I am compared to that perfect circle. Same thing psychologically. We're told about the Garden of Eden. We're told about the, being in the zone. We're talking about seamless connection where you're not even aware because you are it to teach us what the standard is. And then we can say, okay, where am I? So it's meant to be that backdrop. It's meant to be so we can juxtapose our lives over a more perfect scenario and say, okay, how do I now go from here and get it back to the, that pure archetype? And that's the process, and that's the work we do. So all of psychology comes down to that. These two voices, good and evil, right and wrong, knowing that you're a garden fundamentally, and this is a choice you're given, and no matter what happens in your life, that does not define you. That's what happened. You have to clean it up. But the goal is to regain, reclaim the garden that each one of us is. Now, there are many, many aspects to this, and this is where you can look at different schools of psychology. Behavioral psychology is important because sometimes you just need behavior to realign yourself because fundamentally you're that way, but you need the behavior. Positive psychology is very much based on this principle that we're fundamentally a good people, and the positive psychology reveals that, being positive. Looking toward those objectives, looking at those, those higher standards. Frankl's search for meaning, logotherapy, yeah, the search for meaning, for purpose, for direction. And even Freudian psychology, the id, is one part of it, not the whole picture. He got it right. There is some forces beneath the surface, but there are deeper forces at work. I'm not going to go reconcile and bring all the schools of psychology into the picture, but laying out the Kabbalah of psychology, the study of the soul, helps us understand ourselves in a completely new way. The implications are very far-reaching. The difference between a fear-based education and a love-based education. The importance of love. Not just because we need love. Love actually is what brings out and reinforces and validates, more than validates, strengthens and sustains and nurtures the inner flower and the inner garden within ourselves. Fear is to protect, yes, you need to protect from the weeds, but it's not a fear that's debilitating or demoralizing. As I said, the implications are far-reaching. It's a whole different way of looking at the human being. Without being naive, we understand the loss of innocence, we understand mistakes people can make, deliberate ones, the harm, the hurt people can do, parents to children. And indeed, this is what we're all seeking. Whether you call paradise, the Garden of Eden, utopia, Aquarius, Aquarius, Age of Aquarius, Nirvana, there are hundreds and hundreds of names. Every human being, I submit, 
is looking to get back to that Garden of Eden. Think of our memories. Memory our childhood memories. So unfortunately, some of us have very bad childhood memories. Especially if you grew up in a war zone, not in a garden. And you were insecure, didn't know where love was coming from, or you were hurt by those that are supposed to love you. Or hurt and loved by them. Which makes it even more confusing. But everybody wants, conceptually, sometimes, some of us dismiss it as being idealistic, nostalgia is not like what it used to be. You know, it's, it's fantasy. It's not fantasy. It's something we all seek because we want seamlessness. We gravitate toward love. We want the garden. We want that beauty in our lives. And it's what we admire most. That's what we look for. That innocence, that purity. One of the most famous films, Citizen Kane, is based on this principle. Rosebud, remember Rosebud. Rosebud is that mysterious word that William Kane says in the last breaths of his life. And then they discover the investigators that he said it a few other times. And at the end of the film, when they're burning the sled, it reminds us of one of the first scenes when he's ripped away from his innocent childhood. The snow and the sled, Rosebud. So Rosebud is a um, personifies that innocence. The search for innocence. Sometimes all our journeys for ambition and power and strength and money and all influence, is we're really looking for love. We're looking for the beauty, for seamlessness, I would say. Dissonance disturbs us. The fact that we have different fragmented voices, fragmented forces tugging at us in all different directions. Some of us are resigned to it because we say that's reality. It's not reality. Reality is the garden, a beautiful, seamless garden where everything knows its place. And, they're not even, and it's not even conscious because you just know you're in there, you're in that zone. You know, a classic example of the zone is in sports. The, the final set of a championship uh, tennis game. And it's all tied up. The last points, tiebreaker. And you, you can't, it's a nail-biter. You can't even bring yourself to, to, to sit in one place. How do those athletes, those superstars, have the presence of mind, the focus to be able to serve? The watcher can't even stand straight. Because they've trained and trained and trained. And they're in the zone, the experience, that everything you train for is for this moment, and you lose sight. If you concentrate too much on what you're doing, that I'm doing it, you won't be successful. It becomes a seamless flow of the athlete, his racket, the ball, a certain seamlessness. And you ask people in that moment, no, if they were focusing on the moment, that's already, if you're watching yourself doing it, now that doesn't come overnight. That comes with hard-earned effort, sweat and pain. That trains you for that moment. And when you're in that place, you become an extension. You see it even when children take uh, iPhones, smartphones, mobiles. It's just a seamless flow and intuitive. It's like an extension of your fingers. You see people writing and they're like in that zone. We all aspire to moments like that. Can we achieve that 24-7? That's difficult. But we aspire. So we really all want to go back to Paradise the Garden, the childhood rosebud, that innocence. But then life has taken over. And then we become identified with what has happened. That's 
Don't ever identify with what has happened to you. It's happened to you, it's not you. You, you're the gardener in that garden. You're those flowers waiting to emerge. They may have been overwhelmed. They may have been overridden, overgrown by weeds. But it's always there waiting to be released. As Michelangelo said when they asked him, how do you sculpt those beautiful angels in the marble? And he said, I see the angel trapped in the marble and I carved and carved and set her free. So we all have those angels, the flowers, the garden, the music, the beauty. But it's trapped in the marble, in, the, in concrete, in other substances, to the point that sometimes we're not even aware. So the first thing is that we need to be aware. That's why we're told there's a garden inside of you, a flower inside of you. You must be aware of it. Because the awareness, in this case, even though we said awareness is a step down, but now we need awareness to make sure that your new state doesn't become your identity, so that awareness now is to recognize you want to expose and reveal that deeper beauty. You want to carve. and then You want to recognize it. Then you want to carve and set her free. So it requires believing in yourself. It requires the nurturing. It requires protecting. It requires all the elements. And that's the essential concept. I don't necessarily want to use the therapy as a limited word. Sometimes it takes on that shape. It's the journey back to your beauty. It's a journey back to your more perfect state, more seamless state. And though we dismiss children are naive, they don't know what's going on, but there's a certain innocence and beauty that they're not aware of their own giggling and their own happiness. It's not like, oh, you know what, today I'm in a happy mood. No, you're just happy. You don't even recognize you're happy because that's what you are. It's not what you're doing. It's not what you're experiencing. It's who you've become. You embody, you personify happiness reincarnate. And that changes the entire way of looking at life. Because even the negative things become stepping stones. They're part of the process of returning to this beautiful place. They're part of the process of making sure that they're weeded, that they're harnessed, that they're disciplined. So in order for your garden and you the gardener to emerge, re-emerge, but this time in a permanent way. So really the world is a garden waiting to be released. And each of us, our little corner is that garden in our own way. And it's our job, the gardener, to do what has to be done. And even if you wandered away, and even if you're not recognizable to yourself, you've betrayed yourself. you betrayed your calling, your destiny. Ayeko, where are you? You still have a way back. Because it's still beating inside you. It's still there. So you need to study about it and read about it. Embrace it. Be around people that believe in you. And if our parents and our educators and our environment supported this, obviously from young age, it would be a lot easier because you have a good head start. But that never means that if you didn't have that, God forbid, that it's too late. There's no such thing. The garden can never be destroyed. You and the garden can, you can be banished from the garden. You and the garden can be two different realities. Your consciousness and awareness may not be a garden-like one. But that's just waiting for us to do something about that, to realign and reconnect. So this is the Kabbalah of psychology. The soul of the soul is the study of the soul of what makes our souls tick. Our souls are pure. Our souls are beautiful. But then they go through life. And life does many different things to disappoint us, to break us, to hurt us, 
And we develop. We develop fears and anxieties and insecurities and inhibitions and all the neuroses we spoke about, the dissonance, milder forms, more, more, more uh, harsher forms. And it shapes us. It defines us. Here's the process of how to reverse the... Re, here's the way we reverse the process. By reconnecting to what we really are like, recognizing it, and doing things about it. When you do something good and kind... You're not just doing a nice thing. You're actually revealing the real you, the real garden within you. When you avoid negative things, you're also, you're weeding, you're protecting. You're serving and you're protecting. It's a true psychology. Now, it would require a lot more time to develop this into a detailed methodologies and interventions, but you definitely can. And you see how it's all-encompassing. That every different schools of thought, different schools of psychological thought, all can be complemented. Some of it is not consistent with this, and some is. So I want to conclude with the following words. It's all about you and I and how we see ourselves. See yourself as a garden, as a beautiful psyche, a beautiful place. And your home is a beautiful environment. It's a platform. See yourself as the gardener, here to serve and protect. Commit to that mission and do whatever it takes to get there. I have no doubt that you'll succeed. This is what we're here for, the Meaningful Life Center. Meaningful life, a purposeful life, a life of beauty, a life of harmony. And this theme that I've discussed now is a central theme in all our offerings. So please take advantage. Go to MeaningfulLife.com. One good article I would suggest is The True Father of Psychology that captures some of the ideas shared here. And others, The Soul of Psychology, Who Needs Psychology. Look around the word psychology on MeaningfulLife.com. You'll find a lot of material. So please take advantage. Share it with others. We all need each other. And give us your feedback. Give us your questions, thoughts, insights, suggestions. Because at the end of the day, each of us is a flower or a series of flowers in this large bouquet, this large cosmic bouquet. We're each here to help each other discover the angel, the flower, the music, the beauty. Allow it to emerge. Allow it to take over your life. Let us all return back to that garden. And this time in a permanent way, where we transform ourselves by extension, our families, our communities. And like a ripple effect, the butterfly effect, the entire world. Transforming it into a, a world which is one, filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. As the waters cover the sea, like one with, this, with, the, with the knowledge itself. Not I know something. I am that something. I know purity. I know beauty. I am beauty. I become it. I become completely absorbed in it. We melt together into one. Like you see when there's real intimacy, two people love each other. So it's that they can experience each other and be aware. There comes a point where they meld into one. Where they're not even aware. I know today people are very much into awareness and technique and I'm doing this and you're doing that. But the truth is the highest point of ecstasy is when you become completely one and you're not even aware. You're lifted to a higher place. 
that transcends your ego, your consciousness even, your feelings. And that letting go is the deepest level of pleasure of all. Because it's not about you, it's about you being part of something greater than you. May we all be blessed to have that 24-7. But step by step. And we're here to be of any assistance to you. And let's see this as a partnership. Flowers cross-pollinating to creating something that's even greater than the sum of the parts. This is Simon Jacobson. Every Wednesday is a live new broadcast, which is then archived. You can download it on all platforms. It's a podcast. And we have many other different offerings. Just check it out at MeaningfulLife.com. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash donate.